This is Reverend Kirk Lawton, minister at Ocean Lakes Family Campground, and this is our podcast. Our prayer is that this message may enrich your life as you find God especially meaningful to you. Thank you for worshiping with us. He began all of his life with the classic handicaps and disadvantages. His mother was a very powerfully built, dominating woman who found it difficult to love anyone. She had been married three times, and her second husband divorced her because she beat him up regularly. The father of a child I'm describing now was her third husband. He died of a heart attack a few months before the child was born. So as a consequence, this mother had to work long, hard hours from the little boy's earliest childhood. She gave her son no affection, no love, no discipline, no training during those early years of his life. She even forbade him to call her when she was at work. Other children had little to do with him. So he was alone most of the time. He was absolutely rejected from his earliest childhood. He was ugly, poor, and untrained, unlovable. When he was 13 years old, a school psychiatrist or psychologist commented that this young boy probably did not even know the meaning of the word love. During adolescence, the girls would have nothing to do with him and he fought always with the boys. In spite of a high IQ, he failed academically. Finally, he dropped out of high school during his third year. He fought, or he thought he, he might find new acceptance in the Marine Corps. He had heard that they built men, and he so wanted to be a man. But his problems went with him into the Marine Corps. Other Marines laughed at him, ridiculed him, so he fought back. He resisted authority, and he was court-martialed and thrown out of the Marines with an undesirable discharge. So there he was, a young man in his early 20s, absolutely friendless and shipwrecked in his life. He was small and scrawny in stature. He had an adolescent squeak in his voice, he was now beginning to grow bald. He had no talent, no skill, no sense of worthiness. He didn't even have a driver's license. Once again, he thought he could run from his problems. So he went to live in a foreign country. But he was rejected there too. Nothing had really changed. He found that a geographical cure is not a cure. While he was in that foreign country, he married a girl who herself had been an illegitimate child. He brought her back to America with him, and soon she began to develop the same contempt for him that everybody else had always displayed. She bore him two children, but he never enjoyed the status and respect that a father should have. So his marriage continued to crumble. His wife demanded more and more things that he could not provide. Instead of being his ally against the bitter world, as he hoped, his wife became his most vicious opponent. She could outfight him. 
and she learned how to bully him. On one occasion, she even locked him in the bathroom as punishment. Finally, she forced him to leave. He tried to make it on his own, but he was terribly lonely. After days of solitude, he went home and literally begged her to take him back. He surrendered all pride. He crawled. He accepted humiliation. He came to her on her terms. In spite of a meager salary, he brought her $78 he had saved up as a gift, asking her to take that money and spend it any way she wished. Well, she took the money and then laughed at him. She belittled his feeble attempts to to supply the family's needs. She ridiculed his failure. On one occasion, she even made fun of his sexual impotency in front of a friend who was there. And so at one point, he fell on his knees and wept bitterly as the greater darkness of his private nightmare enveloped him. Finally, in silence, he pleaded no more. No one wanted him. No one had ever wanted him. He was perhaps the most rejected man of our time. His ego lay shattered in a fragmented dust. But the next day, this young man was a strangely different person. He got up. He went to the garage. He took down a rifle that he had hidden there. He carried that rifle with him to his newly acquired job. He was now working at a building where they stored books. And from a window on the sixth floor of that building, shortly after noon, on November the 22nd, in the year 1963, this young man I've been describing sent two bullets crashing into the head of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Lee Harvey Oswald, that rejected, unlovable failure, killed the man who more than any other man on earth embodied all the success and beauty, wealth, and family affection which he so miserably lacked. In firing that rifle, he used the one skill he had learned in his entire miserable lifetime. Now, I'm not here this morning to excuse his behavior or to raise the question of whether he acted alone or not. But I just tell you this story to point to this man's tragic life as a vivid example of what can happen when one is deprived of love. Every day of his life, from his lonely days of early childhood right up to that televised moment of his spectacular death, Oswald experienced that crushing feeling of what it's like to have a life without love. Today is Valentine's Day. Aside from the sentimental expressions of love or friendship, there's a deep yearning in the heart of every person, no matter what our age might be, a yearning which says, please love me. Several years ago, there was that popular song which expressed this desire. And I've taken that title of that song for the subject of today's message for the title, What the World Needs Now. And you know the answer. It's love. Maybe not the Hollywood perversion 
of what is sometimes called love, but I'm talking about real love. Certainly that's the big thing that there's just too little of. Now, let me ask you a loaded question. Do you find it hard to love some people? A young minister was once talking with a very fine Christian lady who was a member of his congregation and a good friend. The conversation had turned to the subject of another man who had caused trouble for both of them. The minister had spoken some very hard words about their mutual antagonist. And then feeling a bit guilty, the preacher said, Oh my goodness, there I go. How in heaven's name, though, as a Christian, are we supposed to love a man like that? Well, this fine Christian lady replied, Preacher, you sound as if you expected yourself to be able to be fond of him. That's nonsense, isn't it? I don't believe Jesus Christ, she said, is interested in nonsense. Fondness, affection for people can be cultivated, but it cannot be turned off or on at will like a faucet. Christian love, she said, must be something other than that. And she concluded saying, Preacher, I'm fairly certain that Jesus Christ understands that if I'm required to love that man, it must be as a principle, not as an emotion. Well, those words seem to help that minister whose name was Frederick Speakman. He saw that Christian love begins with action, not emotion. In fact, that preacher went and wrote a book which he entitled, Love is Something You Do. That's true. Love begins with something we do, not with something we feel. I have a real question about this matter of love at first sight. Now, you may be listening to me and say, oh, preacher, that happened to me. <laughs> well, there may be a physical attraction, I'll agree. For example, a boy sees this girl somewhere, and he's never met her, but ooh, is she pretty. And every time he sees her, he just gets the fidgets. Or, or it may be the other way around. A girl has never met this guy, but she's seen him a time or two, and wow. One time he looked at her, and she just almost melted. Now, when she sees him coming, she takes those two thumbs and hooks her hair back over her ears and tries to do several other things to look like she could not care less. But when that boy walks by, her eyes still flutter like a loose electric light bulb. But when a boy and girl begin to date, to be together, that's when they find out if there's a real love between them. You see, love begins with action. C.S. Lewis said it this way, do not waste your time bothering about whether you love your neighbor or not. Act as if you did. And as soon as we do this, we'll find one of the great secrets of life. When you're behaving as if you love somebody, you'll presently come to love them. You know, if we could just adopt that pattern of life, we might even surprise ourselves sometime. Our nation has never known a more popular after-dinner speaker and humorist than a man who lived long ago, about 100 years ago, from the 1920s and 30s. This man had an expression which came to be known as his trademark. His name was Will Rogers. He said, I never met a man I didn't like. 
Ralph McGill, writing in the Atlanta Constitution, tells of an incident that happened to Will Rogers, who was at that time a young cowboy out in Oklahoma. It went this way. In the winter of, eight, of 1898, Will Rogers fell heir to a ranch near Claremore, Oklahoma. One day, a farmer who lived nearby killed one of Will's steers that had broken down a fence and had eaten his young corn. Well, according to ranch custom, that farmer should have informed Will what he had done and why, but he didn't do that. And when Will Rogers found out about it, he was fit to be tied. Flaming with wrath, he called one of his hired hands to accompany him and he rolled out to have it out with that farmer. But during their ride, a norther struck, a freak ice storm, coating the cowboy and cowboys and their horses with ice. And when they arrived at the farmer's cabin, this farmer, who had shot his steer, was not at home. But his wife was there, and she met them at the door, and she insisted that the frozen men come in and wait by the fire until her husband got home. Will Rogers said he noticed how thin, how work-worn this woman was. And he also noticed five small, scrawny children peeking at him from behind pieces of furniture. Well, the farmer eventually arrived, and when he got home, his wife told him how Will Rogers and his companion had ridden out there in the storm. Will Rogers said he started to light into that man immediately, but somehow... He closed his mouth first, and, and he offered his hand instead. This farmer, who was really unaware of the reason for Will's visit, accepted the handshake and invited him to stay for supper. The farmer said, you'll have to eat beans, he apologized. This storm has interrupted the butchering of my steer. The two visitors accepted the invitation to eat there that night, and all during the meal, Will Rogers' companion kept waiting for Will to say something about that slaughtered steer. But Rogers just continued to laugh and joke with the family. He also watched the children's eyes light up every time there was mention of the beef that they would eat the next day and during the weeks to come. They apparently were very malnourished. Well, the norther, the freak storm, was still blowing when supper was over. So the farmer and his wife insisted that the two men stay in their home for the night. And they did. The next morning they were sent on their way with a belly full of black coffee and hot beans and biscuits. Still, all during this whole time, Will Rogers had not mentioned the reason for his visit. So as they rode away, Will's companion began to tease him. He said, I thought you came out here to lay that old sodbuster low because he killed your steer. Uh, I thought you were going to have it out with him. Will remained silent for a few moments as they rode. And then he replied, yeah, you're right. I intended to do just that. But you know, I got to thinking. As I got it figured, I really didn't lose a steer. I just traded it for a little human happiness. He said, there's millions of steers in this world, but human happiness is kind of scarce. Oh, how true that is. There never has been a surplus of kind words. Yes, there may or may not be an emotion to go along with the action, 
but we can control our actions, even if we cannot control or conjure up uh, an emotion. You remember the parable of the Good Samaritan in the Bible? How at the end of it, Jesus asked that lawyer, which of the three proved to be a neighbor? Was it the priest or the Levite or the Samaritan? You can read that story in Luke chapter 10. And the lawyer who asked him this question could only reply, the one who proved to be the neighbor was the one who showed him mercy. Or look at the parable Jesus told in Matthew 25 about the last days. One group was praised, but the other group was condemned. If you read this story carefully, you'll notice that Jesus did not say, when I was hungry, oh, you felt sorry for me. When I was thirsty, you were so concerned. When I was sick, you were very sympathetic. No, he, he didn't say it like that. Instead, Jesus spoke about actions. He said, you fed, you gave drink, you welcomed, you clothed, you visited. This is what the world needs now. An expression of love from you, from me. Love in action. That's not just an emotion. Do you owe somebody some love? The Apostle Paul said, Owe no man anything but to love one another. Most of us probably have some love debts that we have not paid. We need to get busy. How tragic it is when we wait too long to pay these debts of love, those expressions of love. Thomas Carlyle married a gifted and talented young woman who loved music, delighted in the study of literature, and was keenly alive to the beautiful things in the world. But Carlyle, on the other hand, was sour and gray and cross, and at times hard. And little by little, his wife gave up her music, her literature, her pursuit of the beautiful, in order to please and help her husband. But he had little time for kindness, thoughtfulness, or tenderness. He was thinking only of his work. And when his wife became ill, he complained because of her loud breathing. After his wife died, Carlisle began reading her diary. And there he found the record of her devotion to her husband, her great love for him, and of how she had given up so much and had received so little in return. The record is that Carlisle went again and again to her grave, uttering over and over the words, If I had only known. If I had only known. Do you have a love debt that you need to pay even before this day is over? Who has loved you the most? Is it your husband, your wife, your parents, that someone special in your life? What about that one who died for you? If someone special were to give up his or her life so that you could live, wouldn't there be a great love debt for that person? Well, we all know that's exactly what Jesus did for us. 
we say, well, it must have taken a great sacrifice for Jesus to be willing to die on the cross for our sins. Was it a sacrifice? Well, perhaps so in a way. But there's a sense in which it was not a sacrifice. Jesus was just showing us how much he loved you and me. There's no sacrifice in real love. Dr. Cecil Ray tells the story of a young boy who fell critically ill. He was rushed to the hospital. As parents will do, they rallied to his need. They stood by his side. Without question, they readily, willingly spent the dollars that they had saved after the insurance had all run out until one day with the sickness lingering on, they found that every dollar of their savings was gone. Without so much as a moment's hesitation, the father went to the bank and borrowed money. After a time, that money was gone, so he borrowed again. Then that was gone. He sold his car, and he walked to work every day so that the money from the car went for the care of his son. And when that was spent, he and his wife sold their home, which they had lived in all these years and were still buying. He put all that equity in the caring for their son. And then bankruptcy was upon them. And about that time, their son died. As neighbors and friends came to console, one neighbor said to him, you know, it, it must be a terrible sense of loss for you, having sacrificed everything you had and all of it for nothing. You still lost your son anyway. Upon hearing this, the father of that boy turned to him and said, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't do anything but love my son. One minister told of how it used to be in their family when it came time for their three little boys to go to bed. They had a certain little ritual they would go through every night, even when they had company. Didn't make any difference. They would all come in, all three boys would come into the room where daddy was, and they would say to him, Daddy, how much do you love me? And the daddy would answer, giving a short gesture with his hands, putting his two hands almost together, palms facing each other, sort of close to each other, each hand. And the father would say, how much do I love you? Oh, about that much. And then the boys would say, oh, that's not enough, daddy. How much do you really love me? And then giving a little larger gesture, opening up, separating his palms, his hands at a greater distance. The father would say, well, maybe that much. Then the youngest little boy would always say, Daddy, how much do you really love me? And they knew what was coming. It happened every night. Daddy would stand and he would say, well, not that much, giving that first gesture. And not even that much, giving the second gesture. But then Daddy would pull his arms way back and say, this is how much daddy loves you. One day it came home to that preacher in a prayer. He said to God, Father, 
how much do you really love me? God's answer, not that much. Not that much. But one day at a place called Calvary, he took his hand and pulled it back all the way and then took the other one and pulled it back all the way until his arms were outstretched on the old rugged cross. And he said, this is how much your father loves you. Oh God, on this Valentine's Day and all these days to come, help us to remember that in spite of our waywardness, in spite of every sin that we have in our lives, you can't stop loving us because you will not stop loving us. God is love, we know. Help us, O oh God, today to rejoice and to give thanks to you for your great love that we have experienced through Jesus, your Son. Amen.